Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Gordon S., Andy J., Paul M., and Cindy W. We have on Marshall Koval, President and CEO of Lumina Gold Corp., an Ecuador-focused gold copper developer advancing the large-scale Crangrejos copper gold project in southern Ecuador. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol LUM and on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol LMGDF. Marshall, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, it's great to be with you today. Well, Marshall, I want to start off by having you talk to us about your background and then tell us the story of how you came to know Ross Beattie and then how you came to be among the team at the Lumina Group. Yeah, so uh, the story uh, goes back quite a few years. Uh, I knew Ross in the mining industry uh, prior to joining the Lumina Group in 2004. And, um, you know, just by the way of background myself, I'm a, a geologist. I've got about 40 years experience now, a little bit more in the mining industry. Did a lot of exploration work for major uh, mining companies and then kind of went into the consulting business, sort of the environmental geotechnical kind of consulting work. And then that that was with Boulder Associates and that kind of morphed into uh, joining Pintock, Allen, and Holt, and actually putting a mining group together in a consulting company, and we acquired Pincock, Allen, and Holt. It did a substantial amount of work um, as an independent engineering firm for banks on a lot of projects, finance and mine developments, and rather large projects, Batu Hijau, Antonina, Los Colombres, and that sort of stuff. So my background kind of switched from geology to development, environmental, uh, social, all that into more of uh, a development track. And then subsequently, um, I was involved in a couple of building a couple mines. One was uh, the uh, San Jose mine in Argentina. That's a joint venture between the Hawk Shields and, and McEwen Mining. And I was the owner's rep for um, Minera Andes at the time, which McEwen subsequently um, acquired it. So kind of through my 40 years experience, I've been involved in pretty much all aspects of the business from exploration development all the way through construction, finance, been involved in a lot of M&A. And then in the Lumina Group, you know, I started in 2004 with Ross, as I mentioned, and I was involved in all the uh, Lumina Copper companies, and uh, I've been CEO of several companies, Northern Peru Copper, Anfield Gold. Uh, Anfield Nickel, Lumina Gold, and Luminex. So that kind of brings you up to speed. So you've, as you mentioned, you've kind of been at the high level of the Lumina Group. What do you see as the keys to success in this business, and what competitive advantages does the Lumina team have over competing groups who are attempting to employ the same type of business model? I think experience and success and then strong backing from Ross and a a strong team of investors that have followed Ross through his career and his entrepreneurial endeavors. So I think one of the first things that we have 
separate from a lot of other groups, and it shows up particularly in a down market like we have today, is we have access to capital. I think secondarily beyond that, we have a good nose for being first movers into um, countries and into commodities, really Illumina Copper story. Um, you know, Ross sort of in 2003, up at um, Copper was going to go to $2 a pound. It was 85 cents at the time. Looking back, we all saw it go up to about $4. So if he had the right, uh, he had the right view and he went out and acquired 10 high quality uh, copper projects in mining friendly countries. And, uh, you know, that was sort of the success. So we had a similar thing in Ecuador in that Ecuador had really been shut down from sort of 2008, 2009. There was a moratorium on new concessions being issued. The industry contracted. We lost a lot of the companies that were doing exploration in the country. Some companies hung on. We, we thought that the government would eventually turn around because the resource potential of Ecuador was significant. And it's really the last underexplored uh, geologically underexplored region in South America. So we moved into Ecuador sort of in 2013. Um, we hired a consultant, uh, Diego Benalcazar, who's our current country manager. And we did evaluation of all the uh, geology, looking at both copper and gold deposits in Ecuador. And so if you fast forward to where we are today, you know, we are the second largest concession holder in Ecuador between Lumina Gold and Luminex, and uh, we were an early mover. We were in country even uh, before Lundin Mining, and uh, we went and acquired, you know, through the concession system when it opened up again, we acquired all the gold and copper projects that we thought were highly effective that we could get our hands on. And subsequently, we split Luminex out of Lumina Gold because that was more early stage projects with more early stage copper projects and uh, some gold projects. Our flagship project is Condor, which is a gold copper project. But we also have um, Orchidius project, which is, a, in, this is in Luminex, Orchidius project with um, First Quantum. We have a JV with them. The Pegasus project, we have a JV with Anglo-American. And then we're just in the process of finalizing a JV with BHP on our Tarkey project. So that first mover advantage also um, sets us apart from other explorers uh, in the area. So, and then on top of that, we have strong technical teams. So if you take access to capital, strong technical team and work, and you know we proved the strong technical work through Lumina Copper, where we did several deals and, and new projects that are in production today or in the development pipeline with access to capital and um, an entrepreneurial spirit, I think we're a pretty unique group. So you mentioned first mover. It kind of takes me back to thinking about the first moves that happened in 2016 in the sector. Where do you see us today in the extractive industry, namely in places like gold and copper? What's your take on this market and where are we headed? All right, so so I think copper is is in pretty decent footing, although it's been beaten up lately. And I think you're, you're, you're going to continue to see copper demand continue. And I think copper is a good place to be in, and, and it's proven to be in. And that's just a normal industrial cycle. You get sort of the ups and downs. But when you put vehicles and, and a lot of the technology with uh, clean energy and that sort of thing, there's going to be a continued demand for copper. And, and gold, Obviously, um, gold is pretty depressed right now in the context of the equities. 
And basically, there's there's enough going on in the world that I think we're going to see gold continue to move up. Um, it's going to have it's going to be pretty volatile. It's going to bounce up and down. My view on it personally, and I'm not an analyst, but I would hope to see gold sort of in the 1550 range, sort of by the end of the year. We're having a hard time breaking through that. We've moved up that direction and fallen back down. So it appears that we're sort of range bound between 1275 and, and a little bit above 1300. But I think when gold breaks and moves, and it could be geopolitical, it could be economic issues in the U.S. where the U.S. dollar weakens, I think we'll see moves up in gold. And so I'm long-term bull on gold. And I know you look a lot at the the events in the business. And let's kind of look look at you know specifically to the junior and mid tier and major in this in this sector right now, gold, copper, et cetera. In your view, what are the what are the structural problems that are kind of occurring right now that you're seeing in the sector today? We're seeing a little bit of activity in the M and A front, uh, a little bit of yeah. consolidation on the upper tier of things, and you know we've got we've got uh, issues with with new capex into exploring. You know, we've got issues. Also, you could you could call out some issues with compensation and GNA costs, and and some some of the nastiness that occurs kind of on the bottom end of the sector, and really throughout the entire sector. What do you think is kind of weighing on the sector today in terms of uh, sentiment? So I think if you look at um, let's just take gold for instance. I think there's been a, a broad underperformance by the gold mining companies. The majors do a lot better job than a lot of the juniors and, and some of the mid tiers. So I think you know if you look back, um, we had a big purge uh, sort of around 2011 or there thereabouts where a lot of CEOs lost their jobs. So. What that led to was a lot of cost cutting and uh, and uh, you know reevaluation of existing operations. So so that was a key component. And then the the struggle that the majors and there's fewer of them today are, are having to deal with is reserve replacement. So structurally, the discovery it's it, it's it's not easy to discover these gold deposits. And um, we're going to see further consolidation in the sector. I think. Uh, some of the juniors taken out. But on the other end, there's also, if you look at the junior space in the equities market, there's a lot of junior companies that um, really need to be washed out of the sector that don't have access to capital, that haven't performed. So I think from an investor perspective, you know, you've got got that issue where a lot of these players haven't performed in the junior sector. And I think the major sector is uh, a bit better off. And you know, if you look at the the recent deals that Newmont and Barrick did, I mean, that kind of shows you where I think we're going to continue to see consolidation along the way. And then obviously, there's been issues with investors' concerns about um, compensation, uh, that sort of thing related to some of these these bigger acquisitions or bigger mergers. But um, I think that's that's kind of the main thing structurally in the copper sector that seems to be more uh, more diversified players in the copper space there's not too many just straight um, independent producers mid tiers or majors in the copper space so they've got a whole different set of issues that they're dealing with and they seem to fare better in the market um, I think that's kind of a high level perspective that hopefully that answers your question so I want to I, I think that Lumina gold and the project specifically has uh, potentially is part of the answers for that high level uh, folks who are looking at uh, 
larger projects that can potentially move the needle a little bit for the big guys. But before we get to that, I want to ask you another question. Marshall, sure. from your view of an investor and based off your experience, what are the most important factors to consider when looking at a junior explorer and development company like those in the Lumina Group? Is it the project? Is it the management team? Is it the G&A cost, the track record, money discipline via G&A and compensation? How do you look at that from an investor standpoint? Yeah, I think the management team is one of the real critical issues. And I think if you look at sort of Lumina team, the senior management within the group have been together for the most part since, um, you know, early 2000s or mid 2000s, and we're still together. And I think that's that's a key issue. And, and earlier, the, the question that I or the point that I made about access to capital, I think that's a that's a huge deal. And then the asset obviously is is key. Um, you know, the the reason that we spun Luminex out of Lumina Gold was so that we could focus on the development of the Congrejos deposit. And you know, the Congrejos deposit is a top 15. Uh, global gold development project, and I, I can talk a little bit more about that later. But basically, it has a resource of 8.5 million ounces of gold and about a billion pounds of copper. And there just aren't that many projects out there in the world uh, of that sort of scale. And so, you know, those type projects become key to majors when they look at uh, reserve replacement and continuing to grow their business. And I don't know the exact number off my top of my head, but there's probably around only 10, 10, 11 companies that produce more than a million ounces of gold a year. So everybody, you know, the big players, they need to come up with projects. And, you know, we're a development company, uh, exploration development company, so we should be a prime takeover target as we continue to grow, um, de-risk, and advance our Congrejos project. So I think a key thing is there is obviously the, the first thing on the list would be management. And then with management comes the capital. So those kind of go together. And then really the yeah. project. And I yeah. think it kind of goes really, it flows in that order because we all know that we can have a, a really bad management team and an A-plus project and it can still get destroyed. Yeah. But one other thing that I think is really critical is a clear business plan put out to investors in the ability to execute. And execution is is a big thing. And, and you have to do that without a lot of hype. You have to be able to go in and navigate a complex uh, regulatory and fiscal regime like Ecuador. You have to be able to deal with um, uh, communities and social environmental issues. And you have to be able to advance projects technically. And that takes, a, you know, an experienced group of people to be able to deal with that. And so I think that's another key point. So on the other side, what might investors watch out for as red flags when looking at other sector companies? Yeah, I think um, the sort of things are, you were talking about a little bit earlier is uh, cost control. I think the other, the other important aspect, in, and this is one of the things that Ross has instilled in us, and having the investor following is, is really critical. We rarely ever um, do a financing. Uh, a matter of fact, I can't think of an equity financing that we've done where we issued warrants. Um, we always do discount to market. We have an anti-dilutive mindset. Um, in Congrejos, basically in, in Lumina Gold, we inherited a share structure when we acquired Odin Mining. 
And but you know normally we have a much tighter share structure. And if you look at what we did when we spun out Luminex, it's a significantly tighter share share structure. So if you see warrants out there on a lot of financings and Frankly, the weaker management company or weaker management um, a lot of times have to give warrants. Obviously, investors like warrants. I invest in other companies. I like to give warrants. That anti-dilutive mindset is a real, real critical thing. And if you start to see a lot of dilution and um, financing is done with warrants and, and you see the share structure blow up, um, I think those are some red flags. Yeah, I think so. And I think another, not not a red flag, but kind of in that neutral area between the t subjects we talked about is investor patience. I think that's really key for people to understand that the stuff doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. It's not like a, a weed stock or a crypto stock. It's it's something that really takes time to build out. And to dilution, I would just simply say that uh, there is certainly good forms of that dilution. I mean, if you look at what, what Ivanhoe Mines has been able to do and, and arguably uh, some of the Lumina companies, there is value creation with dilution that does occur. But uh, you have to be wary of those types of things. Yeah, I think Trash another delivery. real key key issue is to have highly aligned management with insiders. And to give you an example, the philosophy of all the Lumina Group companies is is management and insiders, primarily Ross. Ross hasn't always been management in some of these companies, but we control a lot of the companies. So. In the Lumina Gold context, in your management, we control about 27.5% of the company. So when you talk about red flags, if you see management don't have much in the game, um, that's something to pay attention to, and particularly if salaries are high. So that'd be another red flag. Absolutely. So the Lumina Group is, to some extent, involved kind of in four companies, Lumina Gold, Luminex, Equinox, and Strategic Resources. Tell us how these companies meet the goals of the Lumina Group and why they deserve a place in a natural resource portfolio. Let's start with uh, Equinox because it, you know that's primarily Ross uh, as the chairman. I'm on the I'm a director of Equinox as well, and that kind of came out of a three-way merger between uh, Prep Mining, uh, Newcastle, and Anfield Gold, and I was the CEO of Anfield Gold and. Basically, Anfield Gold, we had tried to do an Equinox model company, and, and we started with a small asset in um, Brazil, the Coringa mine. And we had acquired that from Magellan that was having financial uh, troubles, and that included a plant. We moved the plant to site. We were getting permitted, and we did a lot more exploration drilling. And what we found was the um, project wasn't the size that we had thought it was or hoped it was. And once we realized that, you know, you can run a project, a Coringa project, which had a little bit around a half million ounces of gold, a little bit less, or you could run a project like Congrejos with 8.5 million ounces of gold. The management team is the same level of effort, right? So what we saw was Anfield didn't uh, add a lot to the portfolio at the time. We sold it to Sarabi. We had cash in Anfield, and it got merged into Equinox. And um, Equinox today, we mentioned uh, Arizona Mine just went into production and had its gold first gold pour, and we acquired uh, the ski mine. So that's an operating mine model. If you talk about the strategic and the Luna Gold and the Luminex projects, those are exploration development plays, totally different um, sort of model than the Equinox model but a lot of the same players involved in all four of these. 
So the strategic um, deal is very early stage. It's um, looking at the vanadium space. Uh, we announced uh, acquisition and a financing in, in strategic. And, you know, that um, that's underway. Uh, it just returned to trading the other day. It had a trade halt on it. It's done very well in the market. The financing that was just done was at 23 cents, and I believe today Canadian, and I believe today uh, just a few days after uh, the trading halt, it's around 60 cents or thereabouts. And then the uh, the Luminex deal, it, Luminex is a pretty amazing project. You know, my feeling on it, it's quite undervalued at the time. We have about $140 million in commitments from three of the premier mining companies in the world. Uh, first Quantum was the first deal we did. Uh, Anglo-American was the second in BHP. And, and that's a discovery story um, with those copper projects. These were early stage copper projects and... Now we've got partners to bring these projects forward. Hopefully we'll see some discoveries, but they're also spending the money to earn in, and, and all these earnings are sort of at the 70% level if they go all the way through the option period. And we would retain sort of 30%, and you know, hopefully these things will, will move and there'll be a major discovery. And then we still have other assets, our Condor project, which we're drilling right now. We're drilling the northern part of the Condor project in Luminex. And that's, um, you know, we're looking at epithermal gold-type mineralization there. And then in the southern part, we have gold-copper porphyry systems. So we have Condor. And then we have two or three other um, early-stage concessions, Kimi, La Canela, Tres Picachos, that we're doing early-stage exploration work. So. Um, you know, that that's a, a totally different story. And then obviously we've talked about Lumina Gold being a development story on on the pathway towards um, development. You know, we're in the field now doing a lot of drilling, infill drilling. We've made a new discovery at Grand Bestia, which is about a kilometer from the Congrejos deposit. And that wasn't included in the 8.5 million ounce resource. And now we're de-risking the project. And... Um, we're doing the basic work in the field to be able to do a pre-feasibility study should the board elect to do that. So that's a, a little bit different um, story altogether. But, you know, basically all of these companies have the same leadership, uh, you know, particularly in Ross's case, and I'm involved in three of the four of the companies. Um, so, you know, a lot of the same management team is involved in all these. So let's talk Lumina. Uh, tell the audience about how this company was set up going back to Odin and uh, Ecuador Gold and Copper. And then tell us about the capital structure and kind of the key backers on the shareholder roster. Yeah, okay. So we acquired um, through a financing Odin Mining in 2014. And it was a financing that Ross, Leo Hathaway, who Leo's been with the groups a little bit longer than I have back in 2004, and he's our, our chief geologic uh, guy. He's he's pretty much uh, been involved in all the exploration and some of the acquisitions uh, along with myself. So we all participated in the financing of this and took over management of Odin. And at the time, we only had 50% of the Congrejos deposit. And ultimately, we were able to acquire the uh, second half of the the deposit when the government of Ecuador opened up the concession system. 
And so then we controlled 100% of the um, of the Congrejos deposit. And so the early early work that we did, sort of in 2000, the end of 2014, early early 2015, we got out there and drilled the thing, tried to understand it better. There hadn't been any resource estimate done on the project um, previously. And then in January of 2017, we put out an initial resource that was about 4 million ounces of gold. And then some sub subsequent drilling in 2000, later in 2017, and then towards the end of the year, we put out another resource estimate that took us to the 8.5 million ounces of gold. So we have some really good exploration success there. We found a deeper portion of the, um, the mineralization. And now that was an inferred resource. Now we're going back and drilling it to inferred. But let me just run you through some of the highlights before I get to the capital structure. So, you know, basically, as I mentioned earlier, it's a top 15 global gold development project, eight and a half million ounces of gold, a billion pounds of copper in the inferred category. And we did a PEA last year, and the PEA showed an average um, production rate of 373,000 uh, ounces of gold per year and 43 million pounds of copper. And, you know, that gave us a post-tax net present value at a 5% discount rate of um, $920 million and a post-tax IRR of um, 15%. And that was calculated at $1,300 ounce, uh, an ounce gold. And that was a 16-year mine life with about 830 million of initial capital. And then in year five, an expansion to from 40,000 ton per day plant to 80,000. And that um, that was uh, pretty exceptional when we when we looked at it. So none of that included the Grand Bestia area. We've got uh, some drill results out on Grand Bestia. It looks pretty significant. And so what we're doing in 2019 is we're upgrading the resource from inferred to indicated, and we're stepping out and, and drilling Grand Bestia. So hopefully we'll um, continue to drill for the next few months and then in the second half of 2018 um, update the mineral resource. So that's kind of the, the overview of the project. And, it, and if you look at the uh, capital structure right now, uh, the market cap's about 173 million Canadian. I think we were trading at about 56 cents, 309 million shares issued an outstanding and uh, about 325 million fully diluted. That's primarily options uh, through four employees over the last four years. Um, most of the options, I think I don't have the split in my head, but probably about half and half are in the money, but uh, not significantly. You know, you look at the 52 week range on the company, it's traded between 46 and 85 cents. And we have research coverage uh, from Haywood, and then we've got some new uh, coverage that's going to be initiated here shortly. So that's kind of the, the corporate structure. And can you give us uh, just briefly the uh, some of the, the major ownership there? I, obviously, Ross Beatty's in there and, and management, but can you give us just a couple figures on that? So I think if you look at people that have been close to Ross and, and some of the funds involved, we probably know where about 50% of the stock is. And, um, you know, guys like Aziz Sharif, 
and some of the groups that he works with uh, in the Middle East, uh, Rick Rule, and and we've got a couple uh, private equity funds uh, involved in the company. That's that's where the remainder of the the stock that we know about is, and um, that, that's at least fifty percent, I would guess. Haywood's been a real strong supporter on the broker dealer side, and you know they've got quite a few people in the story as well. And you mentioned uh, you guys more or less doubled the resource uh, between 2017 and, and uh, I guess 2018. Um, yeah. How does how does management feel with this new zone and, and some of the expansion work that's going on? How does how is management feeling on on this upcoming and and uh, do you see over the next couple of years that there's a real significant uh, when are you when are you guys going to stop adding ounces at this point? <laughs> so so we always knew that. Um, Grand Bestia, which is uh, a deposit sort of a kilometer away from the main um, Congrejos deposit, and it's sort of to the northwest. We always knew it was out there. Newmont had drilled five holes into it, and they had one pretty good intercept from the surface of about 208 meters. Um, I think it was 0.91 grams per ton gold and 0.16 copper. So, so we knew that was a good target, but we had principally been focused on um, drilling Congrejos because it's a large shirts deposit. So the significance of Grand Bestia is it's either going to add uh, mine life to Congrejos or it'll be a satellite deposit that could potentially be a starter pit. And um, so what we wanted to do before we define the project further, i.e. move into a pre-feasibility study, is we wanted to really understand what Grand Bestia meant to us, you know, and Sort of in, we started drilling it at the very end of 2018. We we had a couple holes into it. We drilled 10 holes into Grand Bestia to date for about 5,000 meters of drilling. And, you know, at the same time, we're doing a lot of um, drilling at Congrejos. We drilled about 21 holes this year at Congrejos for about 9,500 meters. And a lot of them have been infill uh, holes to take the resource from inferred to indicated. And then, in addition, we've done metallurgical uh, drill holes to advance metallurgical drilling, part of the engineering to de-risk the project, trying to look at um, a flow sheet and uh, some of the aspects of metallurgy that will enhance the project. We've also done geotech drilling. And we drilled about nine drill holes for Geotech, and several of those drill holes we've done uh, groundwater monitoring for pit slope design and general, generally understanding the requirements for pit dewatering. So if you look at the infill and a little bit of the step-out drilling we've done on the main Congrejos deposit, um, normally when you convert a project from indicated to inferred, unless you're expanding in new areas, Generally, the resource tightens up a bit. You might not get quite as many um, ore tons or or as as many ounces, but we'll know that pretty soon. We're we've pretty far advanced. We drilled to indicated the entire uh, east half of the deposit. Now we're working ourselves to the west half, so that'll be good. But the real upside potential really exists in Grand Bestia, and at this point, with the ten holes that we've drilled. It's pretty wide open. And then there's another interesting aspect. There's some um, outcrops on the surface between Grand Bestia and um, the main Congrejos deposit. And we're just starting to drill the area in between. So there's the potential that 
the entire Grand Vestia Congrejos may be connected and it may be one deposit or Grand Vestia could be a satellite deposit. So we're testing the areas in between right now and that's, that's pretty exciting and may represent some more upside to us. So it's, I mean, you could certainly argue that the project's large enough at this point to, to start looking at that onto a feasibility study, et cetera. So can you give us just kind of a high level overview of some of the kind of the timeline? Uh, when, when might that be out? And then from there, what's, what's the step after that? And, and kind of give us a timeline to where there's, you guys are advancing this on out to potentially a development decision. So basically, the first key milestone is the second half of um, 2019, an updated resource. And at that point, we'll know what the situation with um, Grand Bestia is, how it relates to Congrejos, and if, if they're connected in between. Um, right now, we're doing all the um, engineering work in the field to understand uh, the PEA that we published last year uh, in looking at de-risking that and, and getting a better engineering understanding so that should the board elect to do a pre-feasibility study, which would be uh, completed next year, um, we would uh, be in the position to de-risk and tighten up the operating capital cost assumptions. And, you know, there's several things that the Congrails project has going for it. Power, national power grids in the area, there's cheap power, there's a lot of hydropower in Ecuador. They're looking at exporting uh, electricity to um, to Peru and, and up to Colombia. We're about 40 kilometers from a, a deep water port facility. We have paved roads within eight kilometers of the site. There's ample water to run the project. It's low elevation, you know, it's sort of um, the highest point on the project's 1,300 meters, 1,350 or so. And if you look at a lot of these other Andean gold, copper, or even copper porphyry projects, they're a lot higher altitude and they're a lot further from infrastructure. And we don't have any communities on the site. Uh, we have really good relations with the communities. A lot of uh, people are employed by us, a lot of social programs and that sort of thing. So all those aspects are going to be important to advance the project with your social license and, and move it down the development track. You know, I mentioned the initial capital of $831 million. At year five, there's an expansion, and that's another uh, $400 million. So in the first five years, you're looking at over $1.2 billion of uh, capital that needs to go into this. And, you know, we're a junior developer. You know, this is the type project that a major or a mid-tier well-financed uh, mid-tier should move forward. So, um, you know, if you look at the history of Lumina Copper, some of the projects that we had, uh, we were taken out before we even did a PEA. Uh, Northern Proof Copper, I was the CEO of that. We had done a pre-feasibility study and we were acquired. Um, Relincio, we had done a resource and some of the basic engineering and tech acquired us. So that's really the same business plan here is to add value, de-risk it, and then move the project on to a developer. And so, so when you get to that point, um, thereafter, if nothing happens, what's, what's the plan? Would you guys move to a pre-feasibility? And, and are we looking, are we talking two years out for that? Or where are we at as far as really de-risking no, really you, you packaging this? Right. You would see a pre-feasibility study late next year, and then um, beyond that, you would be looking at, uh, so you're 
you're talking sort of 2021 at the end of the year for a feasibility study and then you'd have to do epcm so so realistically if this project were to move to development permitting into production you're sort of out 2024 2025 time frame and, and that goes back to your earlier point about these projects take a long time, particularly big sites, to get your arms around and to do the proper engineering, the economics, to get your social license, to, to do all these things, sort of development timeline from uh, discovery or from, in our case, um, the first resource in, in 2017. So, you know, these projects do take a long time. Right. What would you say to investors uh, about taking a stake in Lumina Gold today? What would you say to potential investors and why now? So there's still a discovery story ahead of us. Um, you've got a, a, a management team that's able to uh, finance the project to continue to move it forward, technically to risk it and put it in a good, good position. And we're in a depressed market right now. If you look at the, uh, the share price, we're we're trading at as a percent of uh, NAV, we're pretty heavily discounted in the market. A lot of our peers are also. So we think there's upside at this point for investors to enter. And as we continue down the development pathway, as we make more discoveries and start to understand uh, the size of Grand Bestia and the overall Congrejos itself, um, there's still upside to this story. So I think that's that's the main message I want to get to um, investors. You've got a management team that's committed financially, faded in every financing that we've done, and we're able to finance. So, um, you know, we have a track record that we, the Lumina Copper story, we raised about $173 million in the market and returned about $1.5 to shareholders. So we've executed and we have the ability to do that. And um, listen, I can't tell you where the gold market or the copper market's gonna be five, 10 years out, but I can tell you that um, you know, this project has a lot of potential, particularly in a, uh, in a higher price environment. There's a lot of optionality to the project. There's a lot of deep mineralization that didn't make it into the mine plant in the PEA that in a higher price environment, $1,500 gold, you'd bring more ounces into it. So it's uh, there's still a lot of legs in this story. That's that's what I would tell investors. Right. And there's certainly some other, uh, certainly with Luminex and so forth in that region, there's certainly a lot of uh, big mining companies swirling that region if you take a look out and see what's going on with the other projects in the country and so forth. So it's it certainly puts Lumina as a shining star uh, hanging around there as you guys continue to build this out. So how can investors reach out to the company for more information? Yeah, um, Scott Hicks, our investor relations, uh, our VP corporate development investor relations, he handles that. He's a good guy to get a hold of uh, myself. Um, you know, Scott and I are out there. We're really open to talking to investors and it doesn't matter how big or small, um, you know, we want to get interest in the company and we want to be transparent and provide uh, good information. So um, if you go to our website, livethegold.com, all of our contact information should be there. And, uh, also, there's corporate presentations and uh, some more information on the company and the project and the people involved. 
Well, Marshall, uh, thanks for giving us a perspective today into Lumina Gold and also into the Lumina team. We appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, Andrew, I really appreciate the time to talk to you and, and your followers. And uh, like I say, we're here. Um, we're we're going to continue to advance this project. We have funds uh, to take us through the rest of the year. So uh, we're out there working hard. I just came back from the site three days ago and things are looking good. And uh, we have four drill rigs. So let's hope for more upside.